developer of the team of the Brass and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his debut appearance on the program. It's his debut appearance. Former beat writer for the Pittsburgh Tribune Review and also author of Big Data Baseball, Math, Miracles, and the End of a 20-Year Losing Streak. He's now a prolific contributor to Fangraphs.com. It is Travis Sachek. Travis Sachek is the guest in this program. We make Travis Sachek's acquaintance and learn more about the context in which and from which, within which he is writing. For example, we discuss a literary form with which Sachek is intimately familiar and which is simultaneously thankless and difficult. It's the Game Report. Sachek wrote hundreds of them during his time at the Trib and more before that for other papers. He discusses some of his own experiences writing gamers. They're called gamers. Additionally, we talk about the art and science of the clubhouse interview and how a reporter, even with the best of intentions, sometimes feels like a human barnacle. Finally, regarding Sachek's recent move to Fangraphs, I ask if Fangraphs CEO David Appleman ever physically intimidated Sachek to expedite the latter's decision. I'm afraid to say I think that was a consideration. More whimsical comments like that one in What's to Follow. There's no sponsor today, so instead we move directly to our conversation. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Shiny new contributor to Fangraphs, Travis Sachek. And when does it begin? Right now. <laughs> this is our this is our chance. Well, you're going to be a regular guest if you if um, if you would tolerate it. I would like to be if I, I as long as I don't. I'm hoping to not embarrass myself, so I have that opportunity to be a, well, a regular guest. I think let's say this: if you don't embarrass yourself, you're not invited to be a regular guest. <laughs> <laughs> it's. I think it's. So you you are you have so much exposure on the site right now in terms of analysis of the game. Right, you're doing a lot of work. You're doing two posts a day. They're, they want their money's worth, Carson. Yes, <laughs> and you, and now, do you mean they in like the DJ Khaled way, or do you mean they like David Appleman way? Uh, the Daves. The Daves. Yeah. The Daves. Yeah. yeah. Actually, when you say they too, you might mean the readers of Fangraphs, in particular those who have recently paid fifty dollars for an ad-free experience. That's right. The the readers want content. The yeah. Daves want content. Yeah. And I should deliver content. That's why I'm here to <laughs> deliver content. content maker. You I'm are, sorry. yeah. You make, <laughs> you make content. <clears throat> I have, uh, um, well, I, I assume that I'm, well, I'm interested in you for a number of reasons, but I want to, I actually have one substantive question to ask, and this may, this may become, uh, the entire episode. Okay. Um, or, or perhaps it'll just be a 30 second answer and you, you tell me and then we move on, you know. But, um, here's what I know about you. I know that, um, up till very recently, you've been a newspaperman. That is correct. Which is not, which is not a Jewish person's last name. It is an occupation. <laughs> it, <been> a news- <laughs> it's, a, it's a dying occupation, but it's a, yeah. still is one, yes. You have worked on a beat. I have. Yeah, and you've worked on – I think you've worked on a beat, if I'm not mistaken, for more than just uh, the Pittsburgh Pirates, um, writing um, writing about them for the Pittsburgh Tribune Review. But you also did some work da- uh, in South Carolina at some point in covering Clemson. Isn't that right? You've done your homework, Carson. That is true. That's true. Okay. Yeah. And did, now did you have any – did you have any beats before that? 
I did. I covered a I covered Clemson uh, for the Charleston Post and Courier, and before that, I was covering a smaller Division One school, Coastal Carolina, also in South Carolina. Uh, and before that, I was covering high schools. So, but that was less of a structured beat. Uh, the, the Clemson beat and the Pirates beat; those were more traditional, uh, traditionally structured structured beats, I should say. Right. Uh, uh, that's of course the the Chanticleers of Coastal Carolina. That, that's right. I forget what a Chanticleer is. Do you, you enlighten us? Uh, it is tied to bird, uh, Canterbury bird. Tales, right? Some uh, some old English style literature, I believe. So, okay, I'm yeah, very happy that you just. Asked. That you just invoke the Canterbury Tales. Things are going very well so far. <laughs> I think that's good. We can include, maybe we'll discuss Boccaccio next. Have you ever read any Boccaccio? I haven't. No, that's okay. way above my, that's, that's out of my league. I'm not No, no, but you did, uh, no, you did the Canterbury Tales, though, which I introduced me to, well, well, whatever the era is. I don't know if it's medieval literature or not. Let's pretend it is. Uh, and I did not know that that uh, farting would play such a, a large role in it, and that immediately got me more interested in, in, in medieval literature. I mean, it's real. Like, I think the Miller's Tale, isn't it essentially, it's all just a large buildup to a fart joke, isn't it? Am I am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, you know, I, I, okay. I don't know. But right. it, I assume people have always had a sense of humor, so... Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, be, I think perhaps they've had a better sense of humor in the past. Certainly, certainly Chaucer's was excellent. But, um... So you've you've done a lot of work. Um, you've done a lot of work in journalism. You've done a lot of work on beats. Um, and so, um, at some level, I suppose what you're doing now is a bit of a departure, although you're clearly skilled in that. As I mean, uh, as suggested, if nothing else, by your work on um, the blog, was it the Bucko's blog? Is that what you did for the, the Tribune review? The Bucko blog. So Bucko blog? I did have past blogging experience. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I don't think I did. <laughs> no one, that's never been a thing that got someone a job. <laughs> I have past blogging experience. <laughs> I, I think it helps. A, I think it helped a little bit. Yeah, that's a, well, in many cases, it's also a detriment. And but the uh, and then you also, of course, you wrote an entire book called Big Data. Yeah, somehow that happened. So somehow uh, that happened too. Yeah. yeah, you're industrious. I think that's one thing we've established. But here's what I want to ask you about: is actually it's something that has intimidated me uh, for a long time, and it still does intimidate me. And I perhaps this applies to other people as well, but. The game story. How many game stories would you say you've written? Good question. Uh, now, I shared the pirate speed. I think uh, if you look around most Metro newspapers, uh, I would say the majority have two people dedicated to covering baseball because it is a long season. There are a lot of game stories. So I wasn't writing 162 game stories a year. But, sure, no, yeah. But over the last... For the four years I covered the Pirates, I probably wrote uh, regular season game stories, you know, 250, 300. So I probably wrote about 40% of the game stories. So yeah, quite a few. The game story is – this occupies a strange place in the world of letters for me. Um, and I allow me to present an analogy that is, I think, somewhat relevant here is that um, this last spring I visited France with my wife. And oh, lovely. On a, on a sort of strange invitation, we visited a middle-aged couple that she had only known for 20 minutes. Uh, and we stayed with them for two days in the city of Limoges. 
If you're familiar with the city of Limoges, it might be due to their reputation for producing excellent porcelain. And also they produce what is known as porcelain enamel art. You do not need to know much about porcelain enamel art, but here are two salient features about it. <laughs> One is the it is to create porcelain enamel art it, um, necessitates a painstaking process that requires not only years of training, but also incredible patience. Um, I will also say about uh, porcelain enamel art that it is so boring. It is so <laughs> dull. <laughs> um, and um, it's just amazing. And so well, as I was looking at it, I thought, this is this is crazy. This, this, this took so long to make and required so many years of training, and yet it, I feel nothing. Okay? <laughs> that is the backdrop for the question I want to ask you with regard to the, to the game story. And it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with my feelings about the game story, but I would say that generally it is not regarded as – High literature. Is that fair to say? That is fair to say. That is fair to say. It serves a purpose. You you are informing the public about what has occurred during game. You uh, highlight what probably – what equates to like the highest leverage moments in the game and uh, maybe discuss injuries and uh, reactions from at least your – the team you're covering if not the other. Right. Yeah, we try to add words to the box score basically. Yeah, and you and and listen. Here's what I'm trying to say. I think it requires a great deal of skill, and it also, it, uh, in some in a number of ways, and I, what I've always admired is is how, and this is one of the main features of the game story is how, um, uh, let's see, is how quickly it is written following the conclusion of a game. And that's kind of the point, isn't it? What is the sort of target, the target in minutes or hours for completing a game story uh, following the conclusion of the game? Yeah, you, it's – at the Pittsburgh trip, we had to have a running game story ready to send uh, right after the final pitch. So it didn't have quotes. Uh, sometimes it left a lot of uh, stylistic issues to be desired. But we have to have something ready to send at the end of the game. And then you would go down to the clubhouse, gather uh, quotes and details behind the scenes, uh, try to take readers somewhere where they, they couldn't go by just watching the game. Then you come back up to the press box and you try to uh, get your write-through completed. You probably have an hour after the game ends to, to complete a write-through. Uh, at least that was my experience. So... Uh, you definitely have to be organized to to consistently write game stories, and uh, I think you learn to do that over time. But uh, you're right; it's not really a high art form. I, some people do it really well. Andy McCullough has done it really well uh, at the KC Star and now at the LA Times. But uh, I think most people would not consider it high art or fine. But art. what I, w- I would suggest, though, that merely to complete it requires a real uh, a real sense of skill, just merely to have it done. I, I, what I, so what you're saying is, no, this is new to me, and, it, and maybe it's because I'm an idiot. But uh, I, I'm guessing if it's new to me, then it's new. It's new to other people as well. You say that you have to. You essentially are sending something in as soon as the game is complete. Correct. And what and is that and document for the the web basically? Often, okay. Sometimes it could be for first edition uh, print. Uh, but sorry to interrupt. 
please. No, 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 no. You can feel feel free to because the things you're saying are of more value than my what I am saying. So, <clears throat> but so you have that complete, and so as soon as the, the game is over, you're sending in, and that is and now is that going to be the skeleton of the piece that you that you then complete an hour or so later? It often can be, and if you're not feeling especially motivated, <laughs> it may be more than the skeleton. Uh-huh. Uh, but ideally, like the, like, uh, yeah, like the seventh day of a road trip or something like that. Right. Yeah. Uh, part of me would have loved to have been on the Cubs beat because all those day games, and you wouldn't be pressed with uh, urgent deadlines every night, and you could really try to craft excellent game stories every day. But part of me would hate to be in the Cubs beat because you would be worried about trying to write the perfect game story every day. So uh, I think oftentimes, just because of the demands of deadlines, the writing game stories could become more than skele- uh, more than just skeletons. But uh, ideally, you would want to do a thorough rewrite, do reporting, do some investigation after the game, add color, add details uh, that people don't have access to that watch the game on TV or by the radio or, or even at the stadium. So uh, what can you add that we can't... I think writing the game stories become difficult, more difficult, because... Everyone has mobile devices and video, and every game's on cable. So uh, what can you add that that fans and viewers didn't have access to? So that was one of the things I always try to ask myself uh, when I went down the elevator to the press box. And sometimes I did well, sometimes I did very poorly in, in doing that. But, uh, but yes, it, the running game story is a skeleton, and I think you are trying to improve upon that as the night goes on as the deadline waves go on. Yeah, and well, that's okay. And no, there are, of course, uh, uh, occasions when a game does not uh, obey, right? Maybe you have crafted the narrative uh, for the game, but because of a, I guess in particular would be a late game lead change. Ooh, awful. It does not, then it could essentially <laughs> blow up uh, however many words you've written. Up until that point, uh, very true. the uh, The walk off win, as exciting as that is for the home team's fans, that is a nightmare scenario for the the sports writer writing the game story. You probably have a narrative crafted, or at least uh, a theme you like to present. Maybe there's a great starting pitching performance earlier in the game, uh, or a high leverage moment in the seventh inning that you're crafting your story around, and then that is all torn to pieces. Uh, so yes, that is the nightmare scenario, and you'll deal with those several times a year. Generally, do you have, do you have any uh, notable? I mean, I I would understand if it were all just a blur. Do you have any notable instances though where you had um, you had written something and then it was annihilated by the by reality? It's mostly a blur. Yeah, it's <laughs> so, probably, probably fair. I do have That's all fair. these stories on a zip file somewhere, so. Uh, Next time I'm on, I might do some research and go through and see what the most frustrating moment of my 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 career has been today, mm-hmm. and, and share it with you. But yeah, no, I mean that happens nine or ten times a season, I think generally. So nine or ten times a season, you're cursing out loud in the press box, um, mm-hmm. while everyone outside the press box is very happy. What I tried to do was have maybe three things, three important things I was taking away. So even if uh, what I deemed the most important part was blown up. There's still some other elements of the game that I wouldn't have to change too much. So 
I could still talk about the starting pitcher. I could still talk about this play or moment that happened earlier in the game and just rewrite the top. So I think as you learn to, everyone learns to organize their game stories in a certain way, I think. And I tried to break it up into three parts oftentimes, uh, just in case, uh, the narrative was turned on its head in the, in the bottom of the ninth or tenth inning or, or what have you. Those events in a game that you have chosen to um, highlight, do you think that they generally correspond with the with what might be the most high leverage moments in that particular game, or is there is there another reason to um, uh, you know to discuss a particular feature of a game? Uh, yeah, I think that's often the case. Although uh, your analogy to letters earlier was interesting, because I think uh, each game story. You can also look, you can also look at it as each game story can be a chapter of the book that is the season. So uh, sometimes there will be a someone coming back from injury, or this team is scuffling. Uh, did, they, did they continue to scuffle? Did they turn things around? That can be bigger than a high leverage moment, uh, that sort of thing, or it can play into it. So I think those leverage moments often are the the lead of the story. Uh, but but not always. But yeah, often I think that's correct. That's a really pretty way of, um, and I would say a, an illuminating way of characterizing it. To think of the that game story as a chapter in the um, in the book of the season, right? So if maybe if you put together, I, ideally, right? If if you if you were allowed to approach it in this way, you could write a game story that, and you know, you could put all 162 of them together. And there would be something like a cohesive, um, a cohesive narrative between between them. Do, do you ever think? I mean, can you imagine a world where that's possible? Is that document would that document appeal to you, or do you think that that the game story is like sufficiently, um, uh, temp, like temporary and fleeting that it, it ultimately it would not amount to uh, to something you'd want to read again? Maybe Andy McCullough's game stories. I gotta read Andy McCullough's game stories. What is he doing uh, in them? He's writing them really well and very descriptive and illuminating. Uh, and, and I remember, I think he received a lot of attention during the Royals World Series run uh, a couple years ago, and mm-hmm. that helped uh, with the narrative and the meaning, the meaning behind games. But uh, yeah, no, he was—he's just really a talented writer, and he's done a done a really good job crafting game stories and I think he's earned a reputation for that uh, I'm not sure most people's game stories are c- compelling enough to piece together into a, a book but I think that's an interesting way of going about uh, of looking at it if you're yeah. trying to piece together a story and, uh, and especially when you're thinking about the print product everyone knows the score, everyone knows what happened so the next day, how can you make it compelling enough for someone to read that already knows the outcome, the highlights, uh, and all those uh, factors. So yeah, that's a real challenge. Did did you ever, uh, when you were writing for the Trib, or for, was it the Post and Courier before that? Was that right? In Charleston? That's yeah, that's correct. Yeah, uh, when you were doing that, did you ever have uh, daydreams about having the same position, except maybe like twenty years before? <laughs> um, or like you know, down all the way to the turn of the century, maybe when it, it, it in a period when 
I mean, even maybe before television, but certainly the internet, when readers were, you know, like uh, when they were uh, enthusiastically looking forward to the to the paper, and you know, in order to be able to read it. <laughs> I've joked about that many times with you have, yeah. sitting inside, uh, alongside me in the press box that we should have lived uh, 40 years ago. Part of that was more people would be reading our stories, and part of it was we would not be in danger of being laid off the next day. Uh, but for multiple, <laughs> for a variety of reasons, yes, maybe <laughs> I was born at the wrong the wrong time. Uh, and I think the other, I would have also been curious to experience writing. 40 years earlier, or even 20 years earlier, before Twitter, before uh, learning about the web and posting breaking news to it, because you mm-hmm. could focus on the action more. I, th- I think in today's press box, writers are too distracted by Twitter, by, uh, by mobile devices, by demands of creating video and posting lineups and breaking news to the web that they cannot focus mm-hmm. on the actual game events, uh, as writers probably did. 20, 30 years ago, and I know, I think it was a Tom Verducci interview with Jeff Perlman, he, uh, when he goes in press boxes, he's always disappointed to see how much time writers devote to staring at their computer screens at Twitter and not on the actual uh, game events, and I think there's some truth to that. I think people also, writers also have a lot of demands on their time now, but I'm not sure uh, there's the same focus to detail allowed today uh, mm-hmm. yeah. that, that would be ideal and the other thing is press boxes are oftentimes a lot further removed from the playing field than they were uh, at say Tiger, old Tiger Stadium or uh, some places where you're more on top of the action at, at PNC Park you're way up on top of the second deck and I'm not necessarily complaining but you can feel removed from the action at times if you're, if you're too far removed I think the Angels have a poor press box set up the White Sox so uh, there's some challenges in crafting uh, game stories today that didn't exist 20, 30 years ago. That's I, I would, and that's another point I would have. Uh, I, I, maybe I've heard it before, but uh, I've certainly rem- failed to remember it. Uh, <clears throat> but the, that idea of being of the proximity to the action. I guess what is that? Just is that because um, uh, stadiums in trying to extract as much, or the owners of the stadiums? attempting to extract as much revenue from them as possible, uh, have uh, created more, what, luxury seating uh, behind home plate, essentially? I'm afraid to say I think that was a consideration. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, not now, AT&T Park has a great press set up. Uh, so it's not – there are some stadiums that have great uh, press arrangements. Uh, but I know from covering uh, – College basketball, before I covered baseball and college football, mm-hmm. but college basketball in particular, when you are right on top of the action, you hear and see things that can allow for a more interesting game story. And that's just, that's just not possible uh, with a lot of setups in baseball and, and more so in today's press boxes. So, yeah, I don't know. I just think that's an... That's, I would have loved to have been alive in the 1920s to be right, right on top of the action in Havenfield or something. So, uh, well, yeah. on the one hand, maybe yes. On the other hand, uh, that was the time of prohibition. So consider that. <laughs> I, I, if been... there is a will, there's a way to to achieve your <laughs> to achieve your ends for the evening. Okay. But yeah, that's true. I, you have to consider all. Uh, also, I would not be writing for fan graphs if I lived in the 1920s. So. 
that's another consideration. And my life yeah, and expectancy like, would be probably twenty years shorter. That's another consideration. Mm-hmm. So. I don't want to be too presumptuous about your about your life and your ancestors. However, um, my I I come from some Italian peasants, you know, and my grandfather uh, was the first generation born in the United States. And growing up in the twenties, he got typhoid, and so and uh, only by luck was it somehow uh, was it you know addressed. Uh, otherwise, he would have died. Uh, so I'm, I don't know what the Sachiks were doing, but that sounds like an Eastern European name to me. <laughs> And it uh, is. my guess is that your family was not rolling in the dough when they arrived in the States. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say. And, you know, <laughs> before I think about this, these game stores aren't that important. <laughs> I'm, I'm quite happy with uh, 2017. This is perfect. <laughs> yeah. But no, but yeah, now, the Sochiks did not come from money. They, I think they escaped the Bolshevik Revolution. So, uh, yeah, I... Things aren't so bad. No, that's right, yeah. Do you think that your ancestors, um, upon seeing how you conduct your affairs, um, like the ones who came, who escaped to the United States, do you think that they saw what sort of I – mean, I, I don't want to implicate you in this. I could, I could tell you that from my perspective, I think if they saw how I spend my days and my concerns, <laughs> I think they would slap me in the face. Do you get the sense that they would be, that they would be disappointed in you? Very, very much so. Okay. <laughs> they work so hard for me to blog from my living room in my pajamas. I mean, yeah, I, they would slap me. They would. They would slap you. Yeah. Uh, all right. Very cool. Or, or, would they, or would they be really happy that all that drudgery and hard work afforded me a, a very nice lifestyle? You know, I don't. That's know. true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe they would say, "Well, are they, I know that they, they would assume." <laughs> That I was like the richest man in the country by how I, how I conduct myself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't have I don't have uh, servants or anything, but um, I also don't have many hindrances to to, to worldly pleasures. So there's that. I th- I think that lean towards slapping both of us. But uh, yeah, that's right. If if listen, if if your family didn't slap you, mine mine would be willing to come over and give you uh, give you room. They just love slapping people. Is mostly how it is. Well, you said you co- you covered college baseball too. Is that right? And college baseball, For, you covered Clemson. I did. They've yeah. uh, the focus was more in college baseball. It's more in the postseason and uh, the big revenue sports or basketball, football. But people are interested in uh, college baseball tournament. Uh, I like the college baseball tournament. I think it's a really interesting format. But yes, I covered some college baseball too, which was quite enjoyable. Clemson, uh, Clemson has had Clemson had a g- good team last year, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and they've also, I think, maybe they have an exciting one this year. I know that Eric Longenegan has suggested that I should go down uh, to Boston College, where Clemson, we can expect Clemson to be playing. Um, but they had a series of players this past year. They uh, they had a young player named Seth Beer. Um, but they also have, they have a number of players who did not strike out very much. And I was interested to see how they would uh, how they would. I think I think I'm telling the truth. Does this make any sense to you? Does this seem something like I'm saying anything right? Could be. We should all go check out a game together and see if this is indeed true. You uh, see, this is true. To, <laughs> to, to be honest, I have not paid uh, as close attention to Clemson baseball as I would have liked to the, the past few years. Uh, I am aware they won national championship in football. Uh, right, uh, right. Um, that sort of baseball team. I'm not, but 
South Carolina, the Gamecocks, they advance the three straight College World Series. So there, there oh, are a lot of yeah. amateur baseball is doing quite well in South Carolina in general, I believe. Right, right. Uh, can I ask you about some of the stuff on which you've been working for the site? Does that seem fair? Please, please, please do. Yeah, I mean, so probably the well, I guess where I'd like to begin um, is this sort of. Uh, I think what what is it Monday mornings you you seem to be pre- for those you seem to be preparing what you have referred to as a there's a there's a journalist there's a term for it an enterprise article piece article. Enterprise. what does that mean enterprise what does that mean it's a it's not a it's more than a feature story it's looking at a trend or a topic and investigating it researching mm-hmm. it uh, through interviews or data or other means. And it's not so much different than some of the research piece, pieces that are published at uh, Fangraphs or like-minded sites. But, yeah, it usually involves more research than a typical newspaper article or, or blog posting. Well, one thing I've noticed, too, is so, for example, I think, so one sort of uh, post you've written for the site is like, for example, with uh, when Jose Bautista, when when the, um, it was reported that he would be re-signing with the Blue Jays, you wrote about Jose Bautista in particular in the context of his place on the uh, the age curve. Correct. Um, which, on the one hand, um, is you know typically a player of his age. Um, you'd think he's in the decline, almost assuredly. But on the other hand, perhaps there is a new breed of player uh, who uh, have uh, what uh, availed themselves of technology, both uh, you know, in terms of wearables and um, diet, um, in order to preserve their careers, pr- prolong their careers. Uh, um, yeah, the 21st century athlete, and uh, yeah, in that piece, I was interested in. I think if you ask good questions, that, that's really the key to all interesting writing. Can you, if you have a good question, probably lead to interesting answers. And uh, in that piece, I was curious, is the 21st century athlete going to age differently, considerably, uh, in a considerably different manner than the age models we've had from the 20th century athlete? And I don't think we know that right now. And I know Batista is an interesting case to me because he is so interested in his body and trying to beat the traditional or the age cur- curves we have presently. He's having blood analytics done. He's doing eye strengthening or tests or whatever he does, yoga. He gets up at 5 in the morning. He has these crazy workouts. He doesn't eat red meat. So he believes he can uh, possibly beat the age curves, and that would be good for his future earnings. And... Uh, and guaranteed and money and all that sort of thing. Personal happiness, perhaps. Personal happiness. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I suppose if, if, if any time a player can create a situation where he is more likely to retire on his own terms as opposed to being retired, you know, getting retired by a lack of interest from teams. It's um, preferable. Certainly yeah, preferable. preferable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's one That's one sort of piece you've written Um and of course, the, that is in in response to an event that has occurred. Uh, now, the other is uh, um, these sort of enterprise pieces are uh, posts you've looked at uh, that are they have a, a they're a bit more timeless, I suppose, or they're a bit more uh, evergreen. Does that sound right? Evergreen. 
Yeah. Yes, um, evergreen. Yeah, and you wrote uh, Not a newspaper wrote, term. Yeah, right. Yeah, I did, I did it. Yeah, I did it. Uh, and you wrote recently, for example, about um, I guess it's to some degree uh, a, a post that began uh, begins with the the signing of Eric Thames. Not just the signing, but also the optimistic projections for Eric Thames. I I'm sorry, Eric Thames. But I will continue to say Eric Thames <laughs> for the moment. I like Thames. Yeah, uh, sorry. Let's say Thames. Actually, let's say Thames. Okay. Uh, Eric we, Thames. We, we, He's not a river in England. Um, he, uh, right, very optimistic. And, of course, as you note, uh, the Davenport translations, uh, which is another publicly available tool, um, are his are similar to those that were uh, produced by uh, players who played abroad, including um, uh, Jungho. Oh, you would know how to say his name better than me. Jungho Gong. Does that sound right? Is that close? That That is close. Jungho okay. Gong. Jungho Gong. Okay, Gong. Yeah. Yeah, of course, um, you as someone who covered the Pirates would know that. Um, but then you get to this interesting situation, right, where there are, uh, where there does not appear to be a lot of, a lot of scouting coverage. And I think that you, well, you found that there were maybe only, uh, three, three teams that have full-time scouts? Daniel Kim, who, He's a former scout for the Reds, I believe. He lives in Korea. Now he's a KBO analyst for television network, network over there. He he said he's only met three full-time scouts uh, from Major League teams over there. I spoke with the Twins director of scouting. He thinks there's about – the Twins are one of those teams, and he suspects there's four or five other teams uh, that have a full-time asset on the ground there. So, uh, But, yeah, re- regardless, there are not – many full-time scouts in South Korea, uh, which I find to be somewhat curious since this is a $10 billion industry, since 50 million people live in South Korea, and baseball is the sport of choice there. Uh, I understand there's a lot of other issues that go into this and the new international caps and pressures to play in a home country and all. Uh, there's many factors at work here, but just... The idea that Major League Baseball would not want to canvas that landscape a little more is interesting to me. So I thought yeah. I'd write about it. Yeah, well, you cite, uh, I suppose, what is a, a bit of a chicken and egg conundrum, right? I think you um, you you cited a diversity study conducted by Richard Lapchick, who's a professor, scholar at the University of Central Florida, who found that roughly only 1% of Major League players hail from Asia and almost 30% of major leaguers are from Latin America. And therefore, you say, well, uh, you know, therefore it makes sense to, uh, for teams to, con- uh, to, uh, possess a great scouting presence in Latin America. But perhaps the reason that so few players are from Asia is because there is not a very large scouting presence in Asia. Um, and therefore, and therefore, that's the, it's been harder to secure talent from the Asian countries, in, in particular, I suppose, Korea and Japan. Yeah, I, th- I think there is some uh, chicken or egg work at play there. And uh, there's other, I named some of those other factors. I mean, the KBO does award pretty handsome bonuses to their top players, I th- between 800 and 500,000. U.S. dollars to their top players to sign with those teams, so it's not like there aren't uh, very attractive opportunities to stay in-country, but if there were more scouts there, if the amateur market was scouted more heavily, uh, 
not every success story is going to be a, a high-dollar uh, signing. I mean, you look at the Pirates and Charlie Marte signed for $90,000, Gregory Polanco for $150,000. So there's has to be value that baseball is missing by not scouting the area as well as it does in parts of Latin America. Uh, and not to you know, we're not even, we're not even go to this isn't a domestic scouting story, but yeah, I just wonder what is baseball missing by just ignore <laughs> ignoring the area, basically relying on analytics heavily and video to scout professional players while leaving the amateur market largely uh, ignored. Yeah, well, it, you you know, it, I mean, it does appear as though uh, economics could uh, socioeconomics could play a part in this, right? Because when um, if you're contending with uh, countries like the Dominican, for example, uh, which uh, which have uh, problems with poverty um, in a way that that South Korea doesn't. At least, uh, it, so far as I understand it, I'm not a uh, a geopolitical scholar, so I apologize if I'm, I'm citing, uh, if I have these facts wrong. But <clears throat> uh, if that is the case, then essentially you can. I mean, what you're doing, what teams are doing, uh, for better and pr- maybe for worse, really. Uh, in Latin America, is they're leveraging the poverty, uh, the poverty of the young players, um, in order to acquire their services, right? Well, I mean that's undoubtedly true that a Latin American prospect is going to be, uh, well, there's certainly no domestic opportunities to play like there are in Korea, Japan, and uh, there's going to be greater uh, the dollar amounts relative to. Uh, other opportunities there are going to compel that player to sign that contract, and that is viewed as a ticket to a better life. Where in South Korea, uh, it's not the same dynamic. So, yeah, those factors are, are certainly at, at play. Uh, in terms of constructing this piece, how did you know to reach out to Daniel Kim, the KBO analyst? I knew of Daniel back when Jung Ho Gong was... Uh, the process of him coming over to the Pirates, I had gotten to know Daniel. Just uh, he seemed to be one of the uh, top analysts in Korea, and uh, he's he's fluent in English, which helps be sort of translator of not only languages but of scouting information and background. So he became uh, a real a useful resource back when uh, Gong came over to the Pirates. So I've stayed in touch with him and. Uh, I thought, what better person to chat with for this piece? Yeah, well, I, I mean, it really adds a nice dimension having that sort of authority in it, um, and then of course the uh, the voice also of um, uh, what, uh, was it David Kim? Was it was it him from uh, from the Twins? David Kim is the twin scout. Uh, Mike Radcliffe is oh, the yeah, other sure. yeah. the other fellow I spoke with for the story, and uh, yeah, he had some interesting things to say. Too, and he does. He believes the the Asian player population will increase in the major leagues, and I think it was uh, it's been as high as two percent. I think it was one point two percent last year, but in fifty years, maybe it's eight percent, nine percent. Who knows? And uh, and if it does increase that way, I think clubs could benefit by being out in front of that. Head of that curve a little bit, or having the infrastructure to to maybe create a competitive advantage uh, in that part of the world. 
Well, I do. I do recall. I mean, there has been, uh, for as long as I can remember, and I'm a 37 year old person, there's been a great deal of suspicion about the, um, and what is largely proven to be unfounded suspicion about the ability of players from Japan and Korea to compete in Major League Baseball. I remember, of course, when Ichiro Suzuki signed, which might have been uh, was it the 2001 season was maybe his first in the majors. Um, Something around, something around then, and it was around, uh, yes, yeah, and there was uh, there were many questions being asked. Is you know, of course, so he was um, some of the effect of that he was a great star in Japan, but would that convert? Would that sort of um, would he be able to um, convert those skills to the majors? And yes, yes, the answer is yes, uh, uh, pretty resoundingly, because um, not only did he. Um, you know, was he excellent in Japan? But even despite starting in just uh, his age 27 season in, in the States, uh, he's basically, re, you know, produced a Hall of Fame worthy career, uh, which doesn't even account for, you know, the, the however many years he missed, you know, by his absence or, you know, by playing in Japan. Um, and then, of course, uh, well, I think that was gone. I mean, besides Shinsu Chu, who actually came up as an amateur through. Who was signed as an amateur from from Korea? I, I think Gong r- was really the first. Was he the first Korean player to be given an, a, a larger role in the in the states? He was the first KBO position player to jump directly to the major leagues. Uh, I think Kisap Choi was South Korean player who uh, uh, came up through the Cubs system as well. And and before the position players, uh, Chan Ho Park was really the first big South Korean star. I believe, to make uh, his way uh, to the major leagues, pitching for the Dodgers. And he came up through the amateur, or he was uh, signed before he entered professional baseball in South Korea. So he came up through the Dodgers system. Although I think he was pretty close to being pro-ready, so I don't think he spent a ton, ton of time in the minor leagues. Uh, but yeah, there ha- there isn't a great sample size. But there are a lot of, just as there are questions surrounding Ichiro, there are a lot of questions surrounding... Uh, Gung's ability to hit in the major leagues. And in particular, the idea was he's going to possibly struggle against velocity since uh, major league pitchers throw considerably uh, with considerable more force than KBO pitchers. But interestingly enough, Gong became one of the best fastball hitting players in the majors the last two years. Uh, And we'll see when his off-the-field issues allow him to get back on the field. Uh, but but on the field, he's been a really good player. He's exceeded a lot of expectations. Uh, the Davenport translations were optimistic about him, and they were pretty spot on. And we'll see how Byung-ho Park, uh, how his career develops. Uh, I don't think we know enough after his first season, but yeah, like Ichiro, Gong is another guy who's uh, perhaps turned some of the uh, ideas or, or stereotypes about Asian-born position players on their head. And, uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to get a larger sample, larger look uh, at, at how more of those players would transition and uh, translate to the majors. Yeah, and you know who else w- was quite good, uh, despite it was uh, Hyun Soo Kim for the Orioles. Uh, I believe, what, after some struggles in, during spring training... Uh, the, all Baltimore wanted to wanted to demote him to AAA essentially, 
uh, a move which I believe he blocked or at least you know suggested would make him unhappy. And then he ended up, uh, honestly, he ended up being one of the team's best hitters over the course of the season. Um, yeah. which, and you have to think, you have to imagine that um, if he had been that if he had been you know a, a similar I'm not about a similar profile signing, but uh, that if there were not already some latent suspicions about an, um, a KBO player's ability to hit in the states, uh, that that Baltimore would not have given up on him so so quickly. Yeah, and uh, I think that's true. And Deho Lee, I think the the Mariners got some production out of another KBO bat last year. So, yeah. you know, it's true. A lot of there are quite a few amateur players signed out of Korea in the 90s and 2000s, and most failed to reach the major leagues. But that's also true of most players who are drafted uh, yeah. domestically. Most guys yeah. fail to reach the major leagues. So I don't. I'm sure there's some studies on success rates out there, uh, and I don't know how similar, or different they are. Uh, South Korea, Japan versus uh, domestic amateur talent, but. If there's a good one, people should let me know. I'd be curious to see. And I think it's also true that the South Korean diet has changed quite a bit over the last 50, 60 years. And uh, people are becoming bigger, stronger, uh, like Americans have become. So, yeah, yeah, I think nutrition, strength training has also really improved there. So if there were concerns about power development, that sort of thing, I think those are... Uh, being alle- alleviated as we speak. What was the uh, well? Of course, you you were you were a member of the press and for uh, covering the Pirates for the last few years. What was the sort of uh, the effect of having of having Gong on the team? And I mean, what, how would it have changed things from you know a team that was otherwise you know mostly just uh, I guess American or Latin American born players? Yeah, it's a Interesting question, and there's that language barrier. I mean, he did, by his second season, he'd picked up quite a bit of English, but he, his first year he had a translator, I think communication was tough, I think it was probably difficult for him to develop uh, a rapport and relationship with teammates, and he also said some brash things before he came over, uh, like that he was going to win the starting shortstop job over Jordy Mercer, so now... The Pirates and Gong claim that was a bit, little bit lost in translation at a press conference over in South Korea, but I think that did rub some teammates the wrong way. However, I think over time, he's he did become closer with teammates. Uh, they saw his sense of humor, that sort of thing. But but more than anything, he was a good player, and he helped them win games. And I think that always helps uh, indoctrinate you into the, the culture, or, or have you be accepted into the culture, I should say. Yeah, and, and was it for you? I mean, attempting to to communicate with him um, is that something that where you you say, well, I'm only going to ask him a question if it's uh, with other maybe with other players you might have uh, you'd be able to talk in more casual terms or more offhanded terms, but you'd want to present to him something that was a little bit more well formulated, or is is that a total misrepresentation of of things? Yeah. If- and, yeah, it's just more difficult because everything, or 
most questions of substance that cannot be answered yes no have to go through a translator and you're not sure if they're being interpreted 100% accurately verbatim how much mm-hmm. is being lost uh it's just more difficult to have a casual conversation it's more difficult to uh to go in depth and drill deep on some subjects uh, I did write a profile on him. I sat down with his translator and, and gong for an hour in spring training, and th- th- I was able to extract some information that was that was interesting for that, but uh, he was not a guy that you're re- uh, really able to go to on a daily basis as sort of like a team spokesman or, or anything like that. And just because of the language barrier, it was a little... Uh, it was difficult to build a relationship uh with him, I, I mean, I think a lot of writers would be well served to learn Spanish, since you know, thirty, thirty-five percent of the league uh, players speak Spanish. But because how's your, only, Sp- how's your Spanish? <laughs> I should learn Spanish. It, it, is, <laughs> <laughs> it is not a strength. Uh, I know that uh, Eric Eric Nadell, the uh, the radio voice of the Texas Rangers, uh, at one point he he uh, I think became frustrated. And maybe a bit ashamed, which maybe is partially what you're pointing to, um, that he did not know Spanish particularly well. And he just went out and learned Spanish. Obviously, that's not something that is available to everyone. I mean, it's technically available to everyone, but it requires a certain amount of commitment and uh, ambition and intelligence that not everyone possesses, myself included. Um, yeah, I I couldn't create the, the porcelain that, that you... <laughs> that you found in France, and I have trouble picking up languages. But I do think writers would be well served just to, even if it's even if you're not fluent, at least pick up some conversational uh, yeah. ability. And I think that would go a long way towards building rapport and relationships with uh, with Latin players in the clubhouse. And some people have accomplished that, but by and large, uh, there there's a language divide there. It was so boring, Travis. That they are. It was so dull. It was really amazing. <laughs> yeah, you wonder how many. Uh, yeah, that's a very specific skill set. And how do people develop the patience for that? Are they brought up in like a family trade? Is it just a way of life? And I'm sure that uh, some people actually regard the product as as beautiful. I could tell you that the middle aged couple with whom we were staying, they were quite taken with it, and they were proud to show it off uh, as residents of Limoges. But it was, I mean, just dreadful. It was weary, wearisome. <laughs> wearisome? Is that even a word? But, well, I, I, it made me weary, that's sure. Oh, God. I just wanted, to, you, sit, I just wanted to sit down and drink wine. And that did was you not, feign interest in this? Uh, yeah, well, of course. I didn't, I mean, yeah. I did not want to be rude. And the right. people were actually very sweet. Yeah. The people with whom we were staying, they're very sweet. It was just they were showing us the most boring thing. Yeah. Do you speak? Yeah. Are you? So you speak some French. Yeah, some French. Yeah. Not very. No, yeah. not very well. No. How did Maybe you? How did you hit it off so well? Do. Uh, well, my wife speaks French quite well. Oh, okay. And she had known them through someone else, so it was there was a pretense upon which we were staying there, um, and also they were excited, I think, to share the cuisine of the area, which is very good. This is what in what's known as the Perigord region, uh, P E R I G O R D. Uh, or at least on the outskirts of it. They do foie gras very well, for example, which is of less interest to my wife, who's a vegetarian. Although the couple, because she hadn't told them, 
that she was a vegetarian. So when we arrived, they served foie, uh, foie gras stuffed goosenecks. So goosenecks stuffed with a foie gras. And, of course, foie gras is just a uh, an overstuffed liver, goose liver. So it was liver in neck. It was really so, total so. Do- total dominance over over the species. <laughs> and it sounds though. quite delicious. I've spent three days in Par- er, France. That, that's my only experience, and I was all in Paris. So, uh, but yeah, I've. Yeah, you go ahead. I mean, it's still there. The country's, you know, and the and this, France is still there, and Paris is still there. It probably remain there. Yeah. I'm envious of your trip. I would like to experience. I would like to experience what you've experienced. Maybe not the porcelain, but uh, no, not the porcelain. Yeah, I'm going to say, cuisine. you know, if you, yeah. if you take the good, you also have to take the bad. That's the thing, Travis. You have to be a good guest. A, uh, a, yeah. Yes. And you have to be. You have to sort of like be. You have to kind of apologize just for your very presence because you don't speak the language particularly well. <laughs> well maybe I, not speak English was the other thing. Yeah. yeah. I'm yeah. generally apolog- apologetic for my presence most places. <laughs> well, oh, I'll, I'll end with this because it's something that is always wearing on me. I never feel um, – I always feel – well, in, generally I feel like I'm imposing on anyone to whom I'm speaking. Um, and that that feeling is magnified when I approach um, major league players. And I was wondering if that was, A, ever an issue for you. Um, and B, if it ever was an issue for you, if it continued to be an issue for you, because you obviously you did a lot of work, uh, you know, in conversation with players and coaches and front office people. So I assume at some point it wasn't a, a big problem. Uh, I apologize, but I didn't hear the first part of your question. Is appropriate? Oh no, 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 no. It's fine. Uh, did you? Um, as I said, I, I've uh, I always feel like I'm imposing on people. Oh. And therefore, uh, when I I feel like I'm imposing even more on major league players when I ask them questions. Um, so, did did you ever have a, a, any difficulty with that? And if so, did it go away, or did it remain up till the end of your? Or has, does it does it persist today? Yeah, I mean, I'm I hate to intrude on people's privacy, or if they're occupied with. Uh, their mobile device or in conversation, I try to respect that and have some social grace and awareness in the clubhouse. But I also, I guess, came to feel that I'm helping them to a degree, get some free advertising publicity, and the media world does contribute to uh, their livelihood and people's interest in the game. So I, I'm not just there to bother them. We have a mutual... Uh, this benefits us each. It's a yeah. So there's some value there on each side. But yeah, I. The most difficult part, I think, was when you're just standing around the clubhouse, as you have to do every day, and you just you're in their space. This is they're preparing to work, and it's when you're not speaking to someone or not engaged in an interview, where you feel, where I felt like I was intruding more. I felt uh, like I was in the way, uh, for lack of better words. As I was waiting for an interview or waiting for someone to arrive, so uh, yeah, I, you, I can, re- I can relate like to a, that. I can relate to would, that. Would you, would you say you felt like a human barnacle? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one way of putting it. Yes, that's a naval. That's a naval term. 
<laughs> I felt like a yeah. human barnacle at times. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it's just sort of the nature of the setup. Uh, I mean, if they could uh, create a scenario where everyone's at their locker for 30 minutes at this time before the game and it cut down on the, the amount of reporters standing around the clubhouse, that'd be that'd be great, but I don't think that's possible. So instead, a lot of people stand and, and wait and intrude and probably irk and bother players. Uh, but I, I still think it is... Uh, mutually beneficial. Well, I want to tell you a couple things, Travis. One is that this has been a a meandering but pleasant conversation. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. We shared some laughs. Uh, yeah, okay. yeah. Now, meandering or convoluted, you know, you decide. But um, this is the first time we've we've had an extended conversation. I enjoy it quite a bit, and I enjoy being able to ask you questions like this. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. And, uh, uh, yeah, we had some maybe awkward moments in our first dance, but I think overall it was, it was quite pleasant. you got to expect that. That's just <laughs> how it is, yeah. Um, so here's another thing I'll say to you, and I, um, as I say that you have fulfilled your obligation to the program. I met the demands. That is yeah, good. Yeah, you did. Yeah, and that now is this is when I end it. So what I ended, as I say, that is uh, Travis Sawcheck. A an editor, are you an editor, are you a contributor to an employee of Fangraphs.com? Staff writer. Staff writer. Maybe. I'm Carson. Oh, I'll take whatever title you choose to bestow upon me. Okay. We'll say we'll say he's sure. We'll say you're a writer for Fangraphs.com, and then I say I'm Carson Sestouli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.